Well, this morning we were going to begin a series that I've entitled Hope in the Darkness. And it comes uh, from the book of Habakkuk. So I'm going to go ahead and give you some time to start looking. Because most of us don't look at Habakkuk very often. We're going, is that in the Bible? It actually is. It's in the Old Testament. But um, it was written by a man named, shock, Habakkuk. He was a prophet of God who lived late in the life of the kingdom of Judah. Now, y'all know I love history, so bear with me for about two minutes if I give you a quick background. Because I think it will make sense and it will help this as we look at this story over the next few weeks, to know where he is in time. Just like we live in a day where we live in America in early 21st century, they lived in a culture that was a particular situation, a particular political environment, all those kind of things. I could spend an hour, Bill, but I won't. Bill's always giving me a hard time about uh, history. But remember, when the people of God finally possessed the land, they finally came into the land, they became a nation uh, under God, and uh, they rocked along for a while and then finally said, we want a king like everybody else. God gave them a king. That didn't work out so well. Uh, a guy named Saul, and he was replaced by David. And then his son became king. And when Solomon rose to the throne, God was on the verge of doing some really amazing things. And he did through them. And they built the temple in that time. And they expanded the borders of their property as big as they would ever be. It was a great season of life. However, when he died, there was a division, and the land was divided into two nations. One was called Israel, and one was called Judah. Israel was the northern ten tribes, but Judah, along with Benjamin, maintained the capital. They had the seat of government. They had uh, the temple of God where they could worship. And so they held on to that. Well, over time, finally, the northern tribes were dispersed to the, the winds as they were destroyed um, at about 700 years before Christ by the Assyrians who came and just exported those people all over the world. We think of the people of Israel coming back to the promised land. These ten tribes never really came back because they were scattered. They were replaced. They imported people from other nations, and they intermarried in that land, and they created a group of people called the Samaritans that show up in the New Testament later. So there's a connection there. But that's not the people we're going to be looking at. We're looking at the southern kingdom. This is the kingdom that survived. This is the kingdom that had the temple. This is the kingdom that had the presence of God in their land, because that's where God resided, was at the temple. But they struggle with faithfulness as a land. And in their time period, in Habakkuk's time period, they're facing the Chaldeans from Babylon. This group had risen into power or were on the ascendancy, if you will. And what God was about to do was to bring destruction on the land of Judah. And in their minds, they thought to themselves, there's no way God would let that happen to us. We're God's people. There's no way this could happen to us. We have his presence at the temple. We have the Ark of the Covenant. We have the place of worship. We are God's people. There's no way this could ever happen. They can't, in fact, they couldn't even imagine such destruction coming on them. They, we were, we're worshiping correctly. We're doing the right things. We're in the right services. We're in the right places. We're giving the right things. 
They've even had a a renaissance by a young king, Josiah, had come to the throne just earlier, just before this time period, and they had led back to faithfulness. But in the midst of all of that, God is about to do something that they can't even fathom. And they're going into a season where, as a result of poor leadership, a bent to wander, as we all struggle with, they're facing, with, facing a coming storm, and Habakkuk brings this prophecy into it. It's only three chapters long. If you skim through the book too fast, you miss it. That's how small it is. And yet there's a word here that I want you to grasp over these few weeks together as we talk about this, that there is hope even when things look hard. Even when it's dark all around, there is hope. Our passage today centers on what is commonly called the prophet's first complaint. And then God brings answers to it. So what we're going to see are three basic questions and four quick answers and then some thoughts to it. And we'll probably go home early today. Everybody holding your breath? That's what I thought. All right. A Baptist preacher short-winded. That's not even possible, is it? Let me draw your attention to verses 1 to 4 first. Go ahead, cry out to the Lord. Go ahead, cry out to the Lord. Look how it starts out here. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. If it wasn't written in the Bible, we might think it was on the pages of today's newspaper. These words. You think, man, everybody seems to get away with murder. <laughs> Literally sometimes, doesn't it? Same. The world doesn't seem to have much justice anymore. Justice, when it is to put together, seems to be perverted. It seems to be messed up. So I think the three questions, number one is this. Have God, you abandoned us. You go, how dare he ask God that? That seems like irreverent. But the first question, I think it's one, if we were being completely transparent this morning, we would say, I've wondered that sometimes. God, have you abandoned us? Have you left us? Have you walked away? Have you ignored this place? Have you ignored your people? God, we've, we've, we've seen some good things. We've seen a good king come into our land, Josiah. He brought us back into fellowship with you. He cleansed the temple. He reinstituted worship correctly. They brought back the Passover into in, in celebration. God, you've been doing some good things here. Yet there's a large number of people in the land still living as pagans who have rejected God. The prophet, he says, I've been crying to you for help. I see the violence in the land. I see the destruction in the land. And and God, I've brought it to you in prayer again and again and again and again. Where are you? Some of us might think that's irreverent to ask God, where are you? Have you abandoned us? I don't think it is. Our God's big enough to handle anything. But this prophet felt abandoned, deserted, all alone. But notice this. Who did he turn to in the midst of that? To God. He comes in the darkness asking God an honest question. God, have you walked away from us? Have you abandoned us? Second question he asks is this. Why do I have to look at this mess? 
What mess are we seeing? What mess are we looking at around us here? Look at this. Verse 3. He says, Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arrive. What is this mess I am seeing in God? Your land, your promised land. You've given us this place. And yet we're looking at a real mess here, God. Why are we doing that? Why are we looking at this? Why are these pages sticking together? Why are we seeing this, God? And, you know, at first glance, it seems that the prophet is complaining about how God is operating. And you stop and go, wow, that, that, that's pretty bold, isn't it? God, you, God, I think I could do better than you. None of us have ever had that thought, of course. But here he's thinking, God, what are you doing? And, and instead he asks this hard question, I think, of why as a follower, why do I have to see this? God, why, why can't I just not have to look at all this mess? This craziness in the world. Why do you, do some of your people continue to live this way? Why are these things continuing in our land? It appears like the prophet is, is to him, if God actually sees what's going on, he must be ignoring it. Or he's not even seeing it. God, what, what is in the world is going on here? There's destruction, there's violence, there's strife, there's contention. And, you you know, you look at the political situation of the day, you can say, well, that's because the political situation is changing. And it was. The Egyptians have been defeated. The Assyrians are on the rise again. The the Chaldeans are being pushed aside. We've got a mess going on here in the the political situation. And, And poor little old Israel's caught in the middle. But God's at work. The reality is... It really was an external, an external issue they were talking about. It was an internal one because God's people were struggling to be faithful. God's people were wandering from God. And the mess the prophet was seeing was indeed severe. He just wanted to know, God, are you going to keep on ignoring it? Do I have to keep on looking at this? The third question is this, and I know we've asked this question. Why does wickedness seem to win? Why does evil seem to triumph? Why do the bad people win, seems like? The prophet asked this question, why does wickedness seem to be winning in our world? I don't know about you, but that's a question I sometimes ask myself. I look around at some of the nuts, the individuals in our political world, and, and I look at some of the <clears throat> people in the media and all this, the success they have, and I think, God, why them? Why are they winning? Why are they in those positions of influence? Why are in those places of power? God, how in the world have you abandoned us? Why do I look at this mess? And why do they all seem to win? It's huh. like a pretty common question, doesn't it? It's ones I ask. This old world, if you haven't noticed, seems to be spinning faster and faster out of control and further and further from God, doesn't it? I think all of us could agree on that. The world in which the prophet lived was spinning out of control as well. But understand, he's not necessarily speaking just to the world at large, though it was wacky and crazy between all the political changes going on. He's talking to the people of God saying, why are we letting this happen? Why are we, instead of living in victory, are we living in defeat? Why, instead of experiencing God's freedom, are we choosing bondage to sin? Why do we allow ourselves to not walk intimately with God, but to walk Far from him. Why do we do this? <coughs> Wickedness seems to be winning 
Because so many, even people of God, are walking lockstep with the enemy. Listen, I'm not talking about us yet. I'm talking about in Israel, in Judah, right here. That's the issue they're struggling with. They are allowing wickedness to win. They're living like pagans. They're living like people who God has not even known. And they don't believe that they're in the presence of God. And Habakkuk had a complete freedom to cry out to God. What are you doing? Where are you at? What are we looking at? You know, if we stopped right there, it'd be pretty depressing, wouldn't it? Or maybe we could just identify with it. Because this is where many of us, I think, are, aren't we? We wonder what's going on. But then God speaks. Look at verse 5 through 11. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. I think God gives them four answers. Four answers here. The first one is this. I'm still at work. We're not that far down yet, guys. I'm still at work. I'm still at work. In response to Habakkuk's crying out to God, he hears, I think, four answers. The first one is, I am still at work. It would be easy for them to look around at the mess around them and say, God, you've left. You've left us. You've walked away. We're not here anymore. Where are you at? Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. God was doing something in their day. <clears throat> he couldn't even begin to fathom as remotely possible. There's no way this could happen. If you told the people of Israel what God was going to do, they would go, man, there's no way God can do that. Our God doesn't work like that. God doesn't move in that direction. God doesn't do those kind of things. In general, the people of God back then had a narrow view of God. God, you can work this way. This is how you were able to work. And if you do anything outside of this, we can't understand it. They believe God worked one way through his people. It's the only way God can work. God, we are your people. You've chosen us. You've set us aside. And we're special. God wanted his people, though, to believe he was still at work. They needed to live with a confidence that God was still at work. And God was going to bring about something they could not ever in their wildest imagine think could happen. And listen, just because they didn't believe God could do it doesn't believe doesn't mean God can't do it. Second answer he gives, verses six and seven. 
I will use my enemies. Say what? God says, I'm going to use my enemies. You're like, what? God can't use my enemies. Can he use his enemies? Who is he? He's God, all right? He can work any way he wants to work. He tells the prophet he's going to use his enemies to accomplish his purposes. Look what he says in verse 6. Behold, who? I. Behold, I am. Who is the great I am? Y'all with me? The great I am is God himself. He says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. He's doing what? He's raising up who? Do you, look at the text with me. It's not on the screen right now, but you can look in your, in your, in your Bible. Verse 6 says, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. God is at work in here to raise up an enemy. When we think of how God works, we typically think of him moving this way, in visions maybe. Or maybe he works in a revelation or something super spiritual like that. Maybe through his people. Rarely do we grasp that God can and in fact does work through his enemies. Now you're going, whoa, whoa, wait a second, how does that work? Here God makes plans. He's breaking up, follow with me. He's raising up a nasty, filthy people called the Chaldeans through whom he's going to bring his great purposes to pass. What? You all with me? That seems so foreign, doesn't it? There's no way God can work like that, can he? What had happened was the Assyrians were being replaced by the Chaldean dynasty leading the new Babylonian empire, way more than you wanted to know. But these people were the ones who were going to bring the judgment on the house of the Lord, on the people of God. God was at work using his enemies, using an evil empire to bring judgment on his people who were wayward. Using utter pagans? Yeah. So he's still at work. He's going to use his enemies, but look at this. He is going to work in his own time. Look what it says there. I move in my timing. I move in my timing. Look at verses 8 and 9. God's answer so far is he is still at work and will use his enemies to bring about his purposes. And God says, I'm going to show you my timing. My timing. Not your time. Not their time. My time. Look at the text. It's right there on the screen this time. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all came for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like wind. What he's doing here is talking about his time. He says he prepared these people from before they even knew what they were going to do to accomplish his great purpose, which is to bring judgment on God's people. You're going, where's the hope in this? Who's working? Who's moving? God was waiting on the Chaldean dynasty to take control so they can complete God's judgment on them. You're going, judgment? That doesn't sound like fun. That can't be God. God says it's not yet time, but it is my time, and I'm going to do it in my time. It is my time, and I will move when it is correct. And then number four, number four, and my fingers are sticking today is I can destroy the strongholds. And you're going, what strongholds? The prophet is bringing, I think, a word of encouragement, though it is wrapped in a disturbing word. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
He's still describing the Chaldeans as they're coming to bring the judgment. But here's what they're going to do. At kings, they scoff, and the rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Talking about siege ramps and ancient battle techniques that we're not going to. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. But who had sent these people to bring judgment on the people of God? God had. So here's what God's about to do through these people. He says, I'm going to laugh at your fortresses. I'm going to laugh at your strongholds. I'm going to pile up the earth around you. I'm going to take you, and then we're going to move on. They're going to move on. What the people of God had done was to do this. They'd set up other gods. That, that was part of their problem in the temple. They would set up false gods. They would sacrifice wildly and, and crazy things in the place of worship where God should have been revered. And they were doing things that were not honorable. And God says, I'm going to destroy those strongholds. I'm going to take down those places of wickedness. And he's going to use the Chaldeans. Now, what do we do with this? Four quick thoughts, and they're really fast. I want you to see. God just seems to be missing. You look around and you go, where's God? He's not gone. He's right where he's always been. He's still there. Every follower, I think of Jesus, we all have times when it seems like God is missing. It seems like we cry out in prayer and the prayers bounce off the ceiling and like it doesn't go anywhere. The world around us seems to be off the rails. The people who profess to be followers of God, so many live like the devil. And you go, what in the world, God? Where are you? God just seems to be missing. He's not missing. He's still on his throne. He still wants to work through his people. Let me remind you what Peter said, for the eyes of the Lord are where? On the righteous. On the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer. There's nothing we can't bring to the Lord in prayer. There's nothing we can't do to get away from him. He is right here watching, waiting, listening, loving, caring. It just seems sometimes like he's not here, but he's still here. Second, God is always at work. You know, I, I don't see it sometimes. He seems to be missing. But i got to tell you, even when we don't see him, he's still working. And even when we don't feel it, he's still moving. God is always at work. And even when we can't hear him, he's still at work. They wanted to see just like we do, don't we? We want to see God. I want to see you work. I want to see the, the, the amazing things. I want to see the miraculous moment. I want to see. Sometimes we don't get to see those. Sometimes we're just the ones who are working behind the scenes, sharing and, and loving and caring, and then God does something in their lives later. He's always at work, though. John phrased it this way. He said, my father is working until now, and I am working. We're always, he was always at work. He was always moving, doing. Sometimes we're tempted to think, God, you've left us to our devices. God's still at work. And it doesn't negate the reality of our consequences of our sins. But listen, God's purposes are going to be accomplished in his time, in his way. He's always at work. Third, God desires to purify his people. And you're going, wait a second, I thought this was going to be encouraging. 
It is. Let me ask you, mamas and daddies, when your kids, no, okay, none of y'all's kids ever disobeyed you, but imagine that your kids disobeyed you, okay? Y'all with me? What did you do? You go, oh, well, keep going, it's fine, I don't care. We do that, we show them what? We don't love them. Instead, we bring our particular form of discipline, whatever it happens to be, to bear in the moment. Why? Because we want our kids to grow up and to learn how to be honorable, how to be moral, how to be good. And ultimately, as Christian parents, we want to raise them to be in the fear of the Lord. But the reason we do that is because we love them. So why would God bring judgment on his people? Because he really wanted to hurt them and make them really suffer, right? No, because he wants to purify his people. Same thing with us. God loves his people enough to purify them. If you look at what the people of Judah were facing, destruction of their land followed by about a 70-year exile, it would be easy to think, God, you don't care for us. But that would be wrong. God's plan for his people, including us, is to walk in fellowship with him. He wants us to walk and talk with him like Adam and Eve did in the garden before the fall. To have a relationship with him with no shame, no fear, and a great confidence. But sin hinders that relationship. In fact, the short definition of sin is to break fellowship. What sin does is break fellowship. Your kid sins, it breaks the fellowship with you, doesn't it? You have to correct that. When we sin before God, it breaks our fellowship with him. And we can do one of two things. We can either repent on our own or he can bring about a purification on his own. I can tell you which one's easier. But God's not going to let it go. He was at work in their lives. Paul told the church at Corinth this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are new in Christ. We need to grasp that and hold on to that and, and, and get that. And once you answer the call to follow Jesus, life is going to be changed radically because we're in his presence. One more thing. I want to share this with you before we finish. God's going to win in the end. God's going to win in the end. God will win in the end. And we come, we, this comes from this passage here in Habakkuk, the idea that God is in control. He's going to take care of whatever he has to, whatever way he wants to, whatever means he needs to. You see, as a people who have trusted Christ, we need to understand that even when we face trials that are serious and difficulties and hardships, the ultimate goal of it all is a foregone conclusion. God's already going to win. I think sometimes we think, no, the world's stronger than God. The world's more of a mess. They're, 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 they're more powerful. They're more influential. They have this. They have that. No. Listen, none of the politicians and none of the social influencers and media folks have anything on God. He's going to win. We need to remember that. We think the world is fallen and is over and there's no chance. No. I'm confident of this. In the end, God wins. Paul said this to the Galatians. We've already read it once this service. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, the way we find life is to find Jesus. Jesus.
Who is the ultimate hope? Jesus. So I would ask you this morning, maybe you haven't come to that place where you've trusted him. You go, well, I'm a good person. It's not enough. I'm a moral person. Not enough. I go to church. Again, not enough. Because it's not what we do. It's who we know. And if we've never met Jesus, if you've never met Jesus, you're lacking the one thing that gives you the hope you want. And that's Jesus. So how do you meet him? You recognize who you are. You admit you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus died for your sins. And you confess him. And say, Jesus, I trust you. You go, surely there's more to it than that. Nope. It's just trusting him. Only trust him. Only trust him. That's where you find Christ. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond here in a moment. The altar will be open. I'll be available to pray with you. Um, But let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house today and to look at your word and to be reminded, God, that even though the world seems to be out of control, at times we wonder, God, where are you? And there sure seems to be a lot of mess to look at. You're still God. And you still want to have a relationship with us. And we thank you for that. Father, I pray for those who maybe need to respond in some form or fashion. Maybe it's public. Maybe it's private. We pray that you'd give them the faith to do that. In Jesus' name.